G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. Didn't ask much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to um, to do that. So today, uh, joining us um, remotely, as we're, we're still um, trying to uh, limit people coming into the studio. I don't think I've, I've been in the studio for quite a quite well, is uh, one of our professors of small animal surgery at the RVC, um, Professor Vicky Lipscomb, um, and who is also the clinical director of the Queen Mother Hospital for, for Animals, so the teaching hospital um, of the of the RVC, which is situated in the, in the Hawkshead uh, campus, so just north of Potters Bar. So thank you very much, Vicky, for, for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. So, um, oh, sorry, I had a, had a look. So, way back in in May 2014, so you spoke to to Shailen on on podcast number 16. Um, so, uh, so you, this is sort of six years sort of later on, and just um, just over a hundred podcasts later. Um, I thought it'd be good to sort of catch up and find out what what's sort of changed in the world of of Porter's systemic shunts. Um, so, I think we can we can sort of part the you you, you gave a very good explanation of. Um, of what they what they are and, and how to diagnose them and what to what to look at and I suppose I was just wondering I know six years is actually quite a long time in 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 the field sort of of, of research what have you been looking into um, Vicky and and what have you what have you found out? <laughs> well, we have been very busy in the last six years and and actually there have been lots of changes um, in various aspects of the treatment of portosystemic shunts which is the aspect that I'm most involved in being a surgeon and uh, as I probably explained in the podcast um, six years ago there's two broad categories of shunts um, that we treat in cats and dogs one category being extrahepatic shunts and the other being intrahepatic shunts and there have been changes in in both of these um, categories so if we start with extrahepatic shunts. These um, are the large um, congenital abnormal vessel that pass directly around the liver. Um, So when you go in surgically and you're looking into the abdomen, you can see this big large vessel visually. Um, It's visible because it's um, easy to locate. Um, It's uh, running through the abdomen in a number of um, fairly typical locations. And um, is easily visualized, whereas the intrahepatic shunts are the ones where when we go into surgery, um, we can't immediately spot where they are because they're running, even though they're very large vessels, within the liver itself. And so we need additional techniques in surgery to help us um, image and um, work out where they are um, to access them, which is why they're the more challenging cases. Starting with the um, extrahepatic shunts, I think one of the changes that were was already happening six years ago, but that we've um, moved on quite a lot with um, in veterinary surgery is what what is the best way to um, close down these shunts? Um, the very traditional method was to put a, a suture or a piece of ligature around the shunt and try and close it off fully, which um, we can do in about 50% of extrahepatic shunts. So that is still the ideal, the gold standard if we can achieve it. But as I said, 50% of of, uh, cats and dogs, in fact, um, don't tolerate a complete acute ligation in one go because the the blood flow to the rest of the liver that's been underdeveloped hasn't um, progressed enough yet. And so in those cases, the traditional method was to 
just partially um, reduce and narrow the flow through that vessel until such time as the um, vasculature to the liver itself, having been given a boost by having the, the flow redirected by narrowing the shunt, developed more and we could then fully close down the shunt to a second surgery, which we usually perform about three months later. This is a very successful technique because when you go back in, usually 95-99% of the time you can fully close off the shunt. Um, but of course it does require another surgery, which is um, another trip to the vets. Um, it requires another cost. Um, and so obviously various centres um, in different ways have been trying to figure out the best way of um, minimising the need for a second surgery and various um, options have been put forward to um, place materials or devices around this um, congenitally abnormal vessel so that once it's been partially narrowed at surgery, it can go on and fully close down after surgery without having to go back in um, and fully tie it off um, at another at another procedure. And different centres around the world have used different materials and different devices. And to be fair, it's still not known which device is best or which material is best um, because they all um, have some success in reducing the number of um, surgeries that are needed. And so we're still working out which is, is there one that's better than another? But what we've done at the RVC is we've chosen to use um, a, a, a synthetic material, which we originally thought was a cellophane band. So it's colloquially called cellophane band, but it's not actually cellophane itself. We know that because um, we've had a look at the material under the microscope and it's actually um, a synthetic thin film band, but it looks like cellophane band. So if you were to visualise the material, it would be the same sort of material that... Um, you find around a cigarette packet or um, at a florist when you're wrapping flowers, that thin, thin film, so clear um, material. And um, that material, handily, um, whichever one you choose from whichever source, and one of the problems in veterinary surgery is that every centre around the world has essentially sourced their own for many years um, because there's been no commercially available source. So um, as so far, no one has used the same exact same type of material but whichever material you use it does seem to luckily do a fairly similar thing which is to promote an inflammatory fibrous reaction around the vessel so that if you um, partially narrow the vessel with either the ligature or even the cellophane band itself by by clipping it more tightly around the vessel the reaction around this material compared to the suture um, is enough to in many cases prompt a reaction that closes the flow through the shunt and means that if we image the the dog or the cat three months later we find that the flow is reduced or is so minimal that it's not clinically relevant and we don't need to do a second surgery um, so this is ideal for the patient and the owner um, if possible and there have been all sorts of different um uh percentage reports from different centers all over the world about how whether they can achieve full closure in, in in x number of patients and what we know from our data at the rvc is that um as i said 50 percent of the patients tolerate complete um ligature in one closure with a ligature in one go and of the other 50 percent we've found that with our material applied in the way that we do which is um actually fairly unique because many centers place the the cellophane band or thin film band on quite loosely whereas we do um, narrow it to the same degree that we would a ligature so I think we push it 
as it were, um, to achieve as much as we can in the first go and then let the cellophane do the rest. We know from our population of dogs here, and we've seen about 350 um, dogs with um, shunts over the last 10 years, that um, 80% of that of them will go on and completely occlude their shunt um, in the following three months. So there's only a, a remaining 20% out of that group, out of the original group, that still have some flow through the shunt. And um, not all of those will have clinical signs and still need a second surgery, but some do. So there are there's no one method that is completely foolproof for avoiding a second surgery. Um, and in the, for that reason, at the original surgery, we always leave a loose ligature around um, like we always did with the traditional methods so that if the cellophane hasn't done or the thin-fill band hasn't done what we want it to do and the patient still has clinical signs, we still have the option always to go back and do a second surgery, use the ligature that we left around loosely at the first surgery and tie it on tight down fully. Um, and so that's really useful um, information to have and be able to give our owners when they come to the hospital so they can gauge and have a good um, understanding and idea of, of how many surgeries they might need. Um, and it's nice that we've gone from operating twice in all animals to um, only a very few now with extra petic shunts. Vicky, can I just interrupt you just for one second? It's quite difficult when we're not um, facing each other to, to talk. Um, but um, it, out of interest, in a more of a technical aspect, how do you how do you know whether they will tolerate um, complete lig ligation or not? That's a good question, and um, we have a very set, uh, useful um, guidelines that have have not changed at all over the years. Really, they were originally published in textbooks quite arbitrarily I, I feel because they were they were numbers and guides that were that were picked as seeming to be sensible but what we know is that having used those guidelines for the last 20 years or more they have served us very well in fact and we haven't needed to change them or modify them in any way because um touch wood uh, we we don't find that we need to go back in and loosen ligatures so that's not something um that, that we have to do if ever so it's a really really good set of guidelines so for example when we're in surgery we we use many things so we don't rely on one guideline but we look at all of those available together and that provides a very safe estimate of what we can and can't um fully fully close down so we look at um the, the organs in the abdomen that are related to the liver in terms of um, being part of the um, circulation that feeds into the liver. So, so the organs that are part of this portal circulation would be all of the gastrointestinal tracts, so all of the guts, the pancreas um, and the spleen. And so if you have narrowed down a congenital portosystemic shunt too much and this particular dog or cat will not cope with it being totally tied off in one go acutely at surgery what will happen is the blood flow that can't go forwards into the liver as it should do normally if the the vasculature to the liver was properly developed backs up and becomes a very high pressure in that portal vein leading to the liver and that's called portal hypertension and when you have too much pressure in that portal vein the organs feeding into it the pancreas um, and the intestines and the, and the spleen will become unhappy they will be congested um, and react to the fact that there's too much pressure and backflow on them and the pancreas is the best organ to look at because it's normally a nice salmon pink color and when it's 
congested and um, the pressure is too high, it turns grey, um, dark colour quite quickly. And if you release the pressure, it goes back to pink. If the pressure, pressure becomes too high again, it quite quickly changes colour back and forth. So the pancreas is particularly useful. Um, the guts also will, will react, though. They will become darker and appear more congested um, and pulsate um, sometimes more frequently because they're unhappy with that pressure. The spleen is is less helpful. It doesn't tend to to give us such um, obvious um, colour changes as, as those other organs. So that is something that we always look for and check that the, the pancreas and the intestines um, are looking a normal colour and not um, reacting in any, way, in any other way. The other thing that we do in surgery is we have catheters um, in a peripheral artery and also in the jugular vein and these catheters will measure um, the arterial blood pressure and the central venous pressure. The central venous pressure is the pressure going back to the heart from the liver and if everything's backing up in the portal vein and not getting to the liver then actually the pressure going forward from the liver to the heart will be reduced because everything's backing up in the abdomen and so the central venous pressure will go down and so we'll measure that and we will not want it to go down at all so that our, that is our aim to keep ven central venous pressure the same and by the same um, uh, rationale if you have reduced venous pressure going back to the heart you're going to have reduced output from the heart and so your arterial blood pressure will also drop if everything's backing up in the portal vein and in the abdomen and not going forwards and so we also aim not to have any reduced arterial blood pressure so we don't want any um, reduced pressures associated with the heart we want the pancreas and the intestines to look a good color and actually the other thing we also do in surgery is we have a catheter in um, one of the veins um, of the intestine, so a mesenteric vein um, supplying a, a loop of jejunum. And what that does is, because it feeds into the portal vein, which feeds into the liver, it equilibrates um, with that portal vein. So if the pressure is really high in the portal vein because um, it can't flow forwards to the liver as it should, then we can measure that um, using the catheter in our mesenteric vein. And the guidelines that were published in the textbooks, as I said, quite a long time ago, still serve us very, very well for this. And so we aim to not double more than where we started. Um, normal portal pressure is about 10 millimetres of mercury, and often it's a little bit lower than that when we go in because in, in a patient with a shunt because everything's going through the shunt. So if we start at, say, 6 millimetres of mercury, we don't want to go above 12. If we start at 8, we don't want to go above 16 and the other guideline we have is that generally we won't want to go up more than 10 millimetres of mercury anyway. Um, and also I also have in my mind that uh, ultimately I don't really like going above 6 to 18 millimetres of mercury, period. So by counting all of those together and all of the other um, measures that I've discussed, that provides us with quite a lot of information. And if we're very cautious and abide by all of those, it stands us in very, very good stead. And the other thing we do in surgery um, is that we actually inject dye through that same mesenteric catheter to outline and x-ray the um, shunt during surgery. And when we do that, we also take a picture once we've temporarily completely shut off and closed down the shunt in surgery, even if we're not going to permanently tie it off, we want to see what's happening to the vasculature, to the liver, and we can x-ray that in surgery using fluoroscopy. So we also, in addition to all of those measurements, do have a very good idea of what the flow to the liver is like on our x-ray as well. And so we can tell if it's got great branching to the liver, that's probably going to be one that's going to tolerate a good ligation. If it's one where there's very minimally developed branching and portal vasculature to the liver, 
then even before we've done our measurements, we're probably guessing that it's not one that's going to tolerate um, a complete occlusion um, at this time. Can, can I ask you as well, Vicky, with, with um, the, the, the fantastic explanation, by the way, and, and um, um, makes me uh, think of you in, in even higher um, estimation than I, than I did before, if that was even possible. Um, but um, does, does imaging prior to, to, to surgery, has, has that changed? Are you using sort of more advanced imaging techniques and, and rather than looking in, in surgery? That's a really good question too. Um, there's been lots and lots published actually um, in the field of imaging for portosystemic shunts over recent years and so there's been a lot published um, about CT of CT angiography of shunts and what's changed a lot is the capability of the machines that people have and the ability to take much quicker faster slices with more powerful machines and be able to give the injection more quickly which is what you need for a good shunt CT angiogram um, we're very lucky to have a 320 slice CT now so we can get some extremely accurate um, pictures even under sedation whereas before we would need a general anesthetic to acquire such a, a good image um, the other thing um, there have been a lot of publications on on the intraoperative imaging that I was talking about the fluoroscopy c-arm intraoperative imaging and what's interesting is that those techniques are still complementary to to each other. So although CT will give you the most amount of preoperative information that you can get because it's so sensitive for highlighting all of the branches of um, the portal vasculature and the um, uh, venous system in the in the abdomen. What it doesn't do is tell you, because obviously you're not in surgery yet, what happens to that vasculature when you um, challenge the shunt and occlude it. And so it will never um, take away the value of being able to do that in surgery. So even if you have a preoperative CT, which is incredibly helpful, particularly for planning intrahepatic shunts, where knowing where and what the shape of the vessel is before you go in, because these are the ones you can't see, is extremely helpful you still need the intraoperative imaging to um, see what happens to the portal vasculature when you challenge it and try and ligate it. And for the intrahepatic shunts, particularly when you can't see them, and it may be difficult to actually be sure that you've got around the right vessel and not just a hepatic vein, it confirms that you have actually got the right vessel. So it's extremely useful. And even for extrahepatic shunts where um, one, some people might say that it's not so necessary to have intraoperative imaging because you can see the vessel. Very, very occasionally, there are patients that have um, a loop or a double shunt, and if you have intraoperative imaging and you've ligated one extrahepatic shunt or the obvious extrahepatic shunt, what intraoperative imaging done is is does is confirm that you've got the one and only shunt or highlight if there's actually another. Um, part of the loop or a second vessel that needs ligating um, which is um, happening more frequently than you might think so there have been various publications um, where CT studies have shown with both amyloids and cellophane bands that surgeons have actually put the device um, in the wrong location so in one study four out of 20 were in a in a suboptimal place um, still allowing flow um, via a second loop of the shunt so it's very very useful to be able to have that imaging and the, t the two are complementary. 
Wow. Um, and um, when you were talking before as well, <clears throat> a while ago, about the so the 350 cases that, that we've seen over a 10-year period and 80% are, are fixed, and then with a the 20%, there's still flow, but but are they symptomatic or, or not? Do you think that is the, 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 the key, whether the patient is symptomatic, or do you think that we need to or should completely ligate the vessel? So before we had the... Um material that would promote attenuation we even though some or or most of them were improved certainly and some did not have any clinical signs we would still go back in on most patients because we knew that a good proportion of them would develop clinical signs further down the line even if they weren't showing them now we know from very old and and more traditional um, historical papers on shunts that a partial ligation definitely is Um, inferior to other methods and the average amount of time for the clinical science to recur and become evident is three years so you need really good long-term follow-up to be sure Um, because the rationale is slightly different with the attenuating materials it's it's not like a ligature where we wouldn't expect any um, further ongoing inflammation with that 20% that are left it's still not necessarily that they've um got all of the amount of the shunt open that we left them with originally it may only be a very very tiny amount and if we've reversed the direction of flow and it's really really minimal on the imaging then I don't think it's necessary to go back in so that's something that has changed but we always leave as I said that loose ligature around as an insurance policy which interestingly not many people do but I don't understand why because there's literally no disadvantage and everything to be gained by having that as a as a backup. And has there been any changes Ricky, with the, um, the 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 drugs that we might use with these patients now, or any more sort of uh, supporting evidence of of what we should or, or shouldn't use? Um, that has probably been maybe less change in over the years. We um, at the RVC have stopped giving um, antibiotics as a first line stabilisation um, because. Um, we feel that simply altering the diet um, and introducing lactulose is as good a way as any as stabilising them before surgery, which is usually only for two, three weeks or a month before surgery. Um, and I don't think there's a consensus on which would be the best antibiotic if we want to choose an antibiotic, um, but many antibiotics would achieve the same thing and, and reduce the overall flora population of bacteria in the gut and improve things further if needed we haven't um, made much progress to be honest with one of the biggest um, post-operative complications which is um, neurological complications and the the medical treatment of that can be quite controversial so one of the the biggest studies that we've published over the last few years and that's been corroborated by a a later study that was a multi-center study that was published and found exactly the same outcome as us which was that prior to 2012 um, no institutions were pre-treating portosystemic shunt patients with um, anti-epileptic medications in the hope that it might reduce the incidence or severity of post-optive neurological complications based on the fact that there'd been no evidence that that was particularly helpful thus far. After 2012, there was a there was a publication in 2011 um, which suggested that perhaps pre-treating with levetiracetam and an antiepileptic could um, improve the situation for 
post-operative neurological seizures. So after that, most institutions started using levetiracetam in, in, on that basis, um, including the RVC. And so um, when, when we did a recent study with 250 dogs, we had a group prior to 2012 that had not received preoperative levetiracetam, and we had a group after 2012, um, quite a large group, um, both groups are quite large, larger than the than the previous study that had received um, levetiracetam uh, on admission for a good twenty four hours before surgery, and unfortunately, it wasn't um, protective for the development um, or the severity of neurological complications, which is a sad um, finding because it would be really nice to find something that helps us um, deal with these complications because no one is entirely sure what causes them and therefore it's difficult to know what to do to prevent them and we end up just treating them symptomatically when they occur Um, and unfortunately it does seem that giving anti-epileptics prophylactically doesn't seem to help and the study that followed ours ours was 250 there's a multi-study center that followed ours with nearly a thousand dogs that came to the same conclusion so we've now changed our practice and actually um, haven't been given these um, drugs prophylactically on the basis that um, there's been no proven benefit. Am I right in thinking, Vicky, as well, that um, people are starting to look at quality of life as, as well? Is that is that you as well, looking at quality of life in um, in these patients? Yes. Um, it's it's a particularly important parameter for, for congenital portosystemic shunt patients because they live a long time. They they are born with this um, disease, this problem, and if um, if all goes well, they will then live a normal lifespan. And so, um, assess it. And because many techniques are similar, trying to find small differences between techniques often comes down to comparing long term outcome, um, long term outcome of different um, materials used to attenuate the shunt, long term outcome of dogs that have suffered neurological complications and I said with the partial ligation it takes an average of three years for the science to recur so unless we follow up long term it's very difficult to know which are the best techniques and treatments to use and unfortunately um, there's very it's very difficult to be quantitative or objective about that in the long term because mostly it involves asking the owners um, how what their assessment of the of the dog or the cat is because it's difficult to get people to come back and present their dogs to you if they're doing well for veterinary assessment and it's even harder to justify giving them any sedation to image and actually assess the flow through the shunt if they're doing well there's simply no no justification let alone the cost um, to to do that so we really need to come up with the best owner-based assessment that we can and try and have it um, validated and standardised so that at least every centre is using the same questions, the same scales, um, and it can be comparable. So we that's why we published our um, health-related quality of life um, questionnaire for shunts. Um, and hopefully now that means that as that's published and we've been chatting with other centres, that um, hopefully that means we can all use the same scales and criteria and questions and, and have more comparable more comparable outcomes long term that's that's great the the um and are there are there differences now and i know that um 
surgeons this group like like trying new things and are there are there new things that are being tried for for the management of, of shunts and i suppose it's just so like because i know we, we had a conversation about this um about previously that this is quite unique as a condition isn't it because there's no there's nothing to compare in in people and quite often um animals uh um, you know we, we can do things similarly um, in animals that they do in people, but actually this is this is quite unique to to exist in dogs and cats. It doesn't really exist in in people, as far as we're aware. Absolutely, it's it, it exists, but it's so rare um, that normally what we do in people, as you say, is is copy what's been done in medicine. Um, the only study that I found in human medicine of congenital portosystemic shunts took 25 years to find 25 patients so if you compare that to the hundreds of dogs in the veterinary literature um it's a it's a drop in the ocean um interestingly of those 25 patients only about eight ten were actually operated on and a variety of techniques were used that that mirror what we've been doing and pioneering in veterinary surgery so um but we are the ones that have been having to lead the way one of the newer techniques that has been um, published and used in various centres for intrahepatic shunts is the use of use of minimally invasive coiling techniques, um, which is a very um, useful, interesting, uh, novel approach because what it does is is um, avoid the need for um, an open invasive surgery. Um, it avoids the risk of dissecting around a shunt um, that's potentially quite um, large, fragile, covered by liver parenchyma. Um, so there's always a, a potential risk of hemorrhage in any surgery. Um, but it also has uh, quite a learning curve. It's quite a, a difficult technique to master. So you need to spend some time learning how to do it and the, the um, equipment and um coils that are needed in surgery make it slightly more expensive than standard surgery um that technique itself might also require more than one procedure so a minimally invasive approach doesn't necessarily mean it'll only be one surgery um it's with with the with the learning curve i think they are learning to put more coils in initially to try and minimize the risk of of follow-up procedures but some dogs have had a second, third, or even more um, procedures, and the the disadvantage with the coiling method is that potentially um, there's more risk of persistent shunting because there isn't um, the ability to to try and completely ligate the shunt, um, which is what um, we try and do with open surgery. So there's definite benefits um, and disadvantages to both, and no one knows which one is better than another. And sometimes it depends on owner preferences and finances um, and also availability and surgeon experience of which method um, surgeons are most familiar with. Um, I'm not trained to do coiling, so I would not, if someone wanted that approach, um, they would need to um, uh, go to another centre at this point, although we're looking into obviously um, adding that to our um, uh, array of techniques that we can offer but at this point um, our experience and expertise has been in developing the open um, surgical um, technique. And can I ask you Vicky um, if, if you can uh, share with a, with a wider audience sort of what you're what you're looking at now and also potentially what what questions if we have another conversation in in six years time Oh, crikey. Um, then, uh, then what would that what would that look like, and what what questions do you think 
that we'll be we'll be asking uh, then about about this yes i think that um for me the key is long-term outcome because we've made a lot of improvements with anesthesia critical care um imaging and we have these various different methods that are now available to us but it's been difficult to pick out which one is better than another and um so for me i think um the future is about consistency and prospective gathering of as large a database as possible um with the health related questionnaire and really following things through um accurately over 10 years or more um to really try and pick out um the differences the other thing that i would really love to um really get to the bottom of which i don't think anyone has has managed to yet um be the reason for the neurological post-operative complications if we could um combine the clinical cases with some um in vitro lab-based work um with astrocytes and challenge them with ammonia and the conditions that are happening um in these patients post-operatively and try and figure out if there's anything we can intervene with um you know more um, earlier on rather than um only trying to treat symptomatically once it's occurred which seems to always be um something that has the potential for a devastating consequence we, we we're not really in control at that point so it would be far better to try and identify something that we could do much earlier on um and that is something that would be that would be amazing to to try and um delve into and find out difficult to do um but Good, good to be challenged by trying to go down that route. And uh, finally, can I just ask? It's probably my my ignorance, but is the so you're talking about like multi centre studies and a lot of people getting involved in in research, which is which is great. I was just wondering is is there is there lots of similarity between these um these these patients and all the problems that that we see, or do we see um slightly different things from maybe our colleagues in I don't know North America, Australasia, or, or any, anywhere else in the in the world? I I think it's perfectly reasonable to compare different populations. I think they are they do behave quite similarly. I think what's different between the um, the different geographical locations is the types of breeds of dogs that people see in those locations. So they will they will get used to and quite be quite familiar with certain types because I do think that certain types of shunts run in certain breeds of dogs so the australian cattle dogs and maltese dogs in australia um the different breeds that you get in north america versus here will lead to um different centers seeing slightly different um populations but i think the overall principles are the same um and so i think it's definitely worth collaborating with others and having a more a more global approach and we're collaborating with Bristol at the moment because they do the the intrapatic coiling, we do the open surgery coiling, and we're both using the same questionnaire and collaborating with each other so that we can compare our long term outcomes, which I think is definitely the way forward. That's that's great. Um, thank you, Vicky. Is, is there anything else you think you'd like to uh, to 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 bring up? I'm always happy to chat about shunts, and I'm sorry it's been six years. <laughs> no, that, that's that's fine. So you th- thank you so much. I know you're very very busy and have um, more, more things sort of scheduled for today. So you so thank you for, uh, for for joining us. I know that um, 
uh, we, we did try and sort of touch base about a year ago, but but uh, look what, what's happened in the last year. Anyway, we'll, we'll leave it at that, but thank you so much for your time today. Um, and thank everyone for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So you could leave a review, five-star review would be great. Um, and don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, other friends. We'll play some show notes and some links to the um, papers that Vicky was talking about. Um, so if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast then please get in touch you can either email at dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye